What happens when suddenly you're in the middle of the biggest tragedy that you've ever faced? What happens when, when you are, are surrounded by chaos and you have no idea what happens? What happens now? If you don't understand God's sovereignty and God's faithfulness, you'll question where God is and why he let bad things happen to you. But if you have that steel framework, that solid framework, you may still not understand why things happen, but your faith will no longer be in your circumstances, but instead the one who created everything. You'll only know that when you have a solid theology, a solid framework. So that is truth, that we are all theologians. We are all uh, constructors of our own theology. And the height of this, the apex of this theology is found in the gospel. And this is why, sounds mean, but this is why some places, some famous giant places who call themselves a church, they're not a church. Because they've forsaken the gospel. This is our primary aim is to preach and proclaim the gospel. And when a pastor or a church stands in front of the congregation and does not preach the gospel, that is a dangerous place to be. And it is dangerous because they're no longer a church. A church's primary aim is to make disciples by preaching the gospel, by proclaiming that Jesus came to rescue us. This gospel says that we have broken God's law and we're sinners by birth and by choice. And, and, and there is no way that we can be good enough for God because God demands and deserves perfection. But God, being rich in mercy, sent his son to live a perfect life and die for us, suffering God's wrath in our place so that we could be made right with him and that only happens for us when we're broken over our sin and we turn from our sin and we turn to Christ and we give our entire lives and all of our desires and motivations to the Lord. If a church doesn't preach this, they are not a church. If a pastor does not preach this, he is not a pastor. The roots of all false doctrine, all of it, grow from a wrong understanding of the gospel. You think about the gospel that tells you that your, your aim or God wants you to be rich and wealthy and prosperous. It's because they misunderstand the gospel. All false teaching stems from a misunderstanding of the gospel. And this is important for us as a church because if we don't preach the gospel of Christ, the only true way to salvation, then we are no longer a church. We don't meet the requirements or the qualifications. Now, I hope this doesn't sound too harsh to you. But if it does, let me ask you this. What's more important than the gospel? Nothing is more important to us because it's the way that we've been saved. The entire Bible is a story of God's holiness and mercy and love and judgment that culminates, that reaches its height in life and in death and in the resurrection of Jesus. And how does this bring God glory? Not only does it show that he is all-powerful and all-loving, but he makes his enemies his family. He welcomes us in, just like the song that we sang, our sins, they are many, but his mercies are more. And he welcomes us in as his children, his sons and his daughters, and he feeds us, and he clothes us, and he cleans us, and he makes us right so that we can sit at the table and cry, Father, and he belongs to us, and we belong to him. So I hope you see the need for a church 
If it is to be a church and if it is to be healthy, it must focus on the gospel in everything that they do. This is essential. The other thing that makes a church a church is the right administration of baptism and communion. These are two visible signs of the special presence of Jesus that he has given to us. And he commands, Jesus commands us to do this. 1 Corinthians 11, we've preached this, but I'm going to read this extended session or section uh, because it talks, Paul talks about what communion is. But in the following instructions, 1 Corinthians 11, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better but for the worst. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order uh, that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you, do you not have houses to eat or drink in? Or you, do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I receive from the Lord what I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. But even before Paul wrote these letters to the church in Corinth, Jesus instituted this practice in Luke 22. And these two practices, baptism and communion, are important because they loudly proclaim the gospel. And you say, well, how, how, do, how do these two acts, how, how does taking a, a, a drink and, and, and eating a, a wafer and being dunked in water, how does this proclaim the gospel? Well, if you've seen someone be baptized, you know what is said, usually what is said. I, this is how I say it. Buried with Christ in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life. What does this signify? There's nothing magical in these waters. There's nothing magical in that juice and the, the wafer. What does it signify? It signifies in baptism that you were dead and that now you're raised to life. It's a symbol of what Christ has done for us, that we were dead in our sins and now we've been raised to life in Christ. Baptism doesn't save anyone. It doesn't give us any special powers. But it's significant, and it's intended for us to, to example the gospel, to live out the gospel to those around us. Mark Dever says it this way. These two practices proclaim the gospel. Thus, even congregations that have long forsaken biblical doctrine regarding regeneration, Christ's substitutionary death, or hope of heaven, still proclaim these truths in their liturgies as they reenact the signs. The new birth may be ignored, but baptism portrays it. Christ's atonement may be denied in the sermon, but the supper proclaims it. So these two practices, along with the, the right preaching of the word, give us the guidelines for what a true church really is. But what about other churches? Again, I'll say this as gently as I can. There are plenty of places that proclaim the gospel and that administer communion and baptism correctly but they are not churches that I would encourage people to go to. Why? Well, because the church can practice these things, the, that all of these things can happen, but it does not mean that they are healthy. It means that they're a church, but it may not mean that they're healthy. 
I've been in churches where these things were done well, where baptism and communion were done well, but the leadership is screwy, or the evangelism or discipleship is non-existent. There, there is no fellowship happening. A church can be a church without having those things, but it will not be healthy. And here's the thing. I'm not just satisfied being a church. As a pastor, as a Christian, as a member of this church, I'm not satisfied with us just being a church. I want us to be healthy. I want this congregation, First Baptist Alcoa, to be a healthy church. So what makes a church healthy? Let's look at a few things. First, a healthy church will have biblical church leadership. The Bible gives us a, a clear guidelines as what God expects of leadership. Look at 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of an overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Now, do I meet those qualifications every day? No. Do any of our elders 100% of the time meet those qualifications? I, and I can speak for them. They do not. None of us do. But the reality is that, that to be an elder, these standards are a pattern of our life. So if, if we are constantly a lover of money, if that defines us, then no, we're not qualified to be an elder. If we're constantly fighting, if we're constantly being drunk or drinking too much, or if we're not sober-minded or if we're not self-controlled, and that defines who we are, then we are unqualified to be elders. Now, some will remind us that elder and pastor means the same thing, and you say, well, you don't have to be plural. You can have just one pastor. And I'd say, well, you need to look at Titus 1, 5 through 9. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put uh, what remained into order and appoint elders, plural, in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to the rebuke those who contradict it. In that, those passages and about a half dozen other ones in the New Testament, the term elder is plural. Meaning more than one. A plurality. More than one elder should be leading a church. And that's what we have here. We have four men who have, have hopefully, we've met these qualifications to, to be serving you as elders. And a church with a single pastor can certainly be a true church. And there are many of those. can certainly be a good church, but... Is it healthy in comparison to what the scripture says? We see that it must be led by a plurality of elders. So we have church leadership. 
If that's in place, then you're on the road to a healthy church. So the second one that we see, second mark of a healthy church would be discipline. And I know this from my own experience serving in churches as a staff member and being a church member, that most churches do not practice church discipline. Most churches just kind of ignore this passage. But hear what Jesus says in Matthew 18. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am also. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul says this, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with the sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of the world, the greedy and the swindlers or idolaters, since you would need to go out, go out of the world. It's talking about inside the church. But now I am writing to you to not associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother if he is guilty of sexually, sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Not to even eat with such a one. For what do I have to do with judging outsiders? It is not those on the inside of the church whom you are to judge. God judges those outside. Purge the evil from among you. Now you may be thinking, man, that's harsh. Jesus and Paul are telling us if someone is not meeting the standard that God gives for being a Christian and is causing problems and sin is not being dealt with in the church, they must be removed. Well, that sounds mean. That doesn't sound very friendly. And what I'd say to you this is this. When you have children, do you not discipline them? Why do you discipline your kids? Why do you take things away from your children when they don't do what's right? You're trying to correct their behavior. You're trying to teach them how to be good people in the world. And I understand there are no good, no, not one. But, but people who in the world are respectable people, who treat each other well, who care for others. You do that because you discipline your children. Otherwise, they're going to be causing all sorts of problems as adults, aren't they? We discipline, we train our children in the hopes that one day when they grow up that they will be productive members of society. Most of all, that they would come to know Christ. We discipline them. And God says in the church, this is what you're to do. A church that allows sin to run rampant and allows sin, public sin, to go undealt with, it's not healthy. It's not our duty to remind or to determine what we do in a church. Rather, it's our duty to be obedient to what God says. Finally, another mark of, of a healthy church. So we've seen a couple already. Another mark would be membership. We're going to dive into that for the next two weeks after today. But membership is kind of a passing trend, unfortunately. There are a lot of churches who are just not doing it. And a church without membership is not a healthy church either. So in our study of the church from last week and then this week, you've seen what makes up a group of people a church, and you've seen some of the marks of what makes a church healthy. Now, these may be new to you, 
These may be things that you haven't heard or maybe you've heard and you're just like, well, you know, you pass by. And if that's you, if, if you've never really thought about these things, if you've never dived into these things, um, I, I would challenge you to think that they're not just some theological or theoretical debate. This is not just a discussion that, that guys like me like to have with other guys like me. This is a, something that matters to each and every single member of a church. This is how God brings himself glory and how we bring God glory. God is a God of order and he wants his people to be like him. He wants his church to be like him. Now this is not just an issue that we could just set aside. This is of utmost importance to God and it should be to us as well. But you may be thinking, all this healthy church stuff is nonsense. Who are you to say what's right? It's a good point. How is it every single week I or whoever is standing in the pulpit can come and tell you how to do anything? Who am I to tell you how to live, right? This is what, this is what you hear in the culture. Well, that's your truth. You need to live and speak your truth. Who am I to tell you what your truth is? Ryan, you're a hypocrite. Yes, I am. Ryan, you don't follow these standards. No, I don't. R Ryan, you don't have your life perfect. You don't have your standards set. You, you proclaim this every week, and we know for a fact that you're a sinner because we've watched you sin. We've experienced it. Yes, you have. So what gives me the right to stand here and say anything to you? What gives me the right to, to look at the, what it says here and proclaim, well, this is what a healthy church is. This is what the truth is. I'm not perfect. Neither are you. None of us are perfect. But the Bible never says anywhere that we must be perfect before we can claim that it's true. Every human being is sinful from birth, and there's no way to escape this reality. No amount of our good works could ever please God enough to make him happy in us. That's why he sent his son Jesus to die for us. We couldn't accomplish this on our own. And God's plan from the beginning was to provide a substitute, his son Jesus, to come and live for us and to die for us so that he could suffer the wrath of God in our place. So yeah, I am a hypocrite. I know this. I believe this. But there are moments when I don't act like it. There are moments when I don't do what I know that I should do. There's no way around this fact. I, I stand up every week and preach to you sermons that I need to hear more than anyone here today. I'm a wretch. And based on my own works, I deserve punishment. But because of God's great mercy for me, I am a child of God. So there are no perfect pastors and there are no perfect churches and I'm not telling you that I'm perfect or that we're perfect because if you hang around long enough and we all know each other pretty well, none of us are perfect. This is not a perfect church. And so we're not preaching, we're not proclaiming, we're not learning this because we have this all together. We don't. We're preaching and we're believing this, not out of our own weakness, but rather out of the strength of God. We're not pretending to know everything or that we're the only church that has this correct. We are flawed people who have come together to form a collection of flawed individuals. And I've said this over and over and over again. People say, well, there's hypocrites in the church. Yes, and there's always room for more. So come on. We're sinners. We're hypocrites. We know the truth, and yet we do the opposite. 
We, we, we know what God's standard is, and yet we don't do it. We're just like Adam and Eve. They had God's standard. Don't do this one thing, and yet what did they want to do more than anything? That one thing. We are a church full of hypocrites and sinners and people who have done bad things and, and, and done things to hurt others, and we've, we've all done those things. But nowhere does it say we must be perfect before we can gather together and proclaim the word of God. And we should be grateful for that. If you need to discover God's love and grace, do it now. If you've never trusted in Christ and put your faith in Jesus, do it now. And if you need to find a place where that love and that grace is exhibited, you're welcome to join. We don't have it all together. We mess up a lot, but we know that God's grace extends far beyond those places where we think we're too bad or where we think we're too good. God's grace extends far beyond anything that we can imagine. So do not go another day without giving your life to Christ, and don't go another day without being part of a church family, without covenanting together as a church family that loves you and gives you grace where you need it most. Would you pray with me?